whilst we have built our civilization mostly on the back of fossil fuels, we now know that that is a path that's going to eventually lead us to ruin and we need to make a rapid transition to cleaner forms of energy. And the oil and gas companies have a very stark choice. Welcome to Energy in Conversation, a look into our energy future through the eyes of people leading the way. I'm your host, Dean Somerville. We begin 2020 as a planet in transition. Last year, climate change captured public consciousness like never before. The governments of the UK, France, New Zealand, and California all legislated to cut greenhouse gas emissions to net zero. This transformation will involve all parts of the global economy. As our energy supplies come under greater scrutiny, leaders from across society are asking what today's oil and gas companies will look like in the net zero world of 2050. Today, we've got something a little different for you. Energy Institute Chief Executive Louise Kingham sits down with Martin Wetzlar from Shell and Bob Ward from the Grantham Institute of Climate Change and the Environment to hash out this tricky topic. Hope you enjoy it. I'm uh, Louise Kingham, Chief Executive of the Energy Institute. I'm Bob Ward. I'm the Policy and Communications Director at the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment at London School of Economics and Political Science. And I oversee all of our engagements with the media, policymakers, the public. My name is uh, Martin Wetzlar. I work at Shell, where I'm the Director for Integrated Gas and New Energies, which is the business that produces, transports and sells um, natural gas uh, and that develops the low carbon business models uh, for Shell. Been in this industry for decades and hope to be there for a long time. The consensus around climate change has led to urgent binding targets such as the Paris Agreement and the UK's net zero legislation to reduce CO2 emissions by the middle of this century. And this is going to require action across economies and, and also around the globe. So given the scale of this ambition, and assuming our best chances of achieving it, can you each briefly describe what today's oil and gas companies should look like in 2050? Well, the Paris Agreement commits the world to limiting greenhouse gas emissions so that we hold the rise in global mean surface temperature to well below two degrees and the temperature has already risen by about one degree so we have a very small margin of opportunity here now if you look at the projections if we wanted to aim for one and a half degrees which would be very ambitious we will need to limit emissions of carbon dioxide the main greenhouse gas to zero by 2050 all other greenhouse gases by 2070 and for a significant part of the second half of the century we will have to have so-called negative emissions where we're actually sucking carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. Now even well below two degrees would require us to reduce our carbon dioxide emissions very sharply from what they are now. The major source of carbon dioxide is the burning of fossil fuels. It's not the only source, but it's oil and gas companies and the consumption of their products that are the main driver. And we're going to have to make a transformation in the way we particularly generate energy. Now, if you look at those facts, it's very difficult to see oil and gas companies continuing on beyond the middle of this century as they currently are. There simply won't be the demand for the products. Oil, in particular, has no real future because you can't really find a technological solution 
for the production of carbon dioxide, which is incurred in land-based transport, which most of oil is used for at the moment. So oil and gas companies are going to have to envisage a future, and they have to start now, where they are not based on the same business model as they are now. And I believe that the best chance we have of a successful transition to a zero carbon economy is if the oil and gas industry is on board and plays a leading role in the transition. And that is the challenge they all face. Yeah, I recognize much of what Bob says. And I think the challenge is indeed uh, enormous because society has really built itself around hydrocarbons, most of our basic needs in terms of food, shelter, uh, heat, mobility, and even health rely significantly and crucially on the availability of hydrocarbons. And, and that will need to change because there's no way we can meet the Paris uh, targets if, um, if we can simply continue to scale up the system as we, uh, as we know it today. So if you then look ahead further, the oil and gas companies will really need to become energy companies. By the middle of, the, of this century, the largest way that, com- that energy will be consumed will be clean electricity up to maybe even 60% of electrification of the total world energy system. So if large oil and gas companies want to continue to be relevant, they will need to be part of that solution, and and they don't play in a material way in that sector yet. Uh, As a company, we've set um, uh, targets for ourselves um, in the near term and ambitions for the longer term to to reduce our carbon footprint, our net carbon footprint as we call it, uh, uh, in line with the Paris agreements, and we're we're very active in um, in pursuing the low carbon business models that we need to mature in order to reach that. And so I, I like to think that we are on our way and very committed to being the kind of energy company the world needs, not only today but also in 2050. The alternative is for companies to become really niche players. I do think there will be a need for oil by 2050. There are segments of energy consumption that are very hard to decarbonize and do need the energy density of a molecule. Um, I certainly think there will be an, a gas plus CCS role. But if you focus on that, you'll be a niche player in the industry rather than a major player. Uh, and that is certainly what we intend to be. So having said all of that, European oil and gas companies spend quite a small amount today, single digit percentages of their annual budgets on investing in clean energy and particularly, as you described, Martin, electricity production, renewables and clean power, storage and so on. In some parts of the world, that figure's even lower. So, for example, North American and Asian Mm -hmm. companies So how do we square that? Because it sounds to me like the ambition and the challenge is out of kilter with the scale of the investment that we see today. It will it will definitely have to change going forward if that uh, if that vision is going to be achieved. Uh, I think it is important for companies to make sustainable investments in sustainable energy, uh, and therefore they need to look for low carbon business models that work for their customers as well as their investors. But I'm absolutely convinced that these models will be there. But we can't do it by ourselves. I was uh, driving to Italy this summer and passed through a a recently renovated shell station in the south of Germany that had six beautiful charging stations, a hydrogen dispenser, and as well as the traditional uh, diesel and uh, gasoline um, uh, islands. And uh, there were queues for the traditional gasoline and diesel islands, and there was absolutely nobody to be found charging their car or filling up with hydrogen. We can go so far, giving our customers options, investing in infrastructure from cleaner energy. 
But we also need the customers to buy these products. And we also need governments to, to create carbon price mechanisms and create re- regulations and mandates in order to drive that transition together. So governments can't do it alone, customers can't do it alone, but companies also can't do it alone. And, and across the three, we need a lot more collaboration and integration to make sure that, that it becomes interesting for everybody to make sustainable investments in sustainable energy. You mentioned very briefly the role of investors there, which I'm, I'm quite interested in, because that's quite a challenge for companies, isn't it? To respond to investor demands and expectations and also make this transition and these changes. What's your view about the role of investors in this going forward? I think investors have a key role to play. The core challenge for investors, of course, is they want to be part of the future. They want to, to invest in these low-carbon business models, but they also want them to be profitable, right? And the profitability is not because people are... Uh, are fundamentally greedy, it is because that profitability pays many important bills. And so investors and we need to square this issue of of developing at scale low carbon business models that are profitable enough. Uh, And this is always a challenge. I I gave the Germany example. By the uh, early next year, we will have built 100 hydrogen filling stations in Germany. At the moment, there are 500 hydrogen cars in Germany. So that's five per station. That clearly isn't an investable business model. You don't want to build the next 100 stations if there is no car industry and consumer response to this. And and so that we need to get more in sync in order to scale up. That, I think, will then start to move the needle. But we can't wait for it. So I don't think the industry can say governments and customers should go on that journey, and if they do, we'll be there. We need to give them the options to decarbonize, but then we do need them to actually respond, because otherwise we can't continue to grow our investment in that space. So, Bob, what's your view about some of those levers that Martin's referred to? Well, I think the role of investors is absolutely critical because we've seen in the past when oil companies have tried to invest, for instance, in solar, that investors have tended to penalise them for diversifying away from their core business. Now, Martin interestingly talked about the importance of oil and gas companies now envisaging themselves in the future as true energy companies and not reliant on oil and gas and they will need business models and investment plans that reflect that and the figure you quoted of one percent investment in clean energy is simply not credible if you're really serious about the transition investors increasingly are going to expect from companies like shell that there's disclosures about the direction of the company. So I think that we will see increasingly investors making decisions about oil and gas companies, about whether they really are serious and credible about the transition to being an energy company. And I think Shell will need will come under pressure to demonstrate that. But we need to make this transition in a way that doesn't create hardship for people. This is the big challenge, is the transition has to be managed. We don't want to make people's lives worse. And we've seen, for instance, if you put up the price of gasoline, it creates genuine hardship for those on lower incomes and you get social unrest. We're seeing at the moment consequences all around the world of doing that. So you need to do this in a managed way and choose mechanisms that think about the distribution of costs. We haven't really spoken too much yet about the the growing global demand that there will be for energy and that that sort of presents a parallel challenge, if you like, Mm -hmm. to tackling climate change. So, Bob, do you think it's possible to meet that growing global demand with a scaled back or significantly scaled back role for oil and gas? Well, we're going to have to because the alternative is we won't tackle climate change and the consequences of that will be 
far too great to contemplate uh, it being a compatible with a prosperous, peaceful world. It is going to be very difficult. Remember, there are almost a billion people in the world who don't have access to electricity. That in itself is a scandal, and we should be working as hard as possible to give people access to electricity. But if in doing so we endanger them with the risks of climate change or local air pollution created through the burning of fossil fuels, then we will have let them down. It's no use taking people out of poverty but then killing them in cities through dirty air and and the impacts of climate change. So we do need to have a very big strategic shift in the way in which we think about energy generation and consumption. There is huge scope for increasing energy efficiency across the world in all areas of life. And again, that doesn't always seem to be compatible with the oil and gas companies short-term commercial objectives where inefficient use of their products increases demand, etc. But I would hope that the oil and gas companies will recognize that at a time when their role is coming under increasing scrutiny, not just from pressure groups, but from the public, they need to form a new social compact with the public and accept that Whilst we have built our civilization mostly on the back of fossil fuels, we now know that that is a path that's going to eventually lead us to ruin and we need to make a rapid transition to cleaner forms of energy. And the oil and gas companies have a very stark choice. They either accept that challenge and lead the way in making the transition or they will be increasingly demonized and will face all the consequences of that, which is not just bad reputation, but you will not be able to hire good quality young people who increasingly are going to make decisions about where they want to work based on the reputation of employers. So that, to me, is a huge challenge facing the oil and gas industry now. So Bob describes quite a stark potential picture Mm -hmm. there for for, for companies like yours, Martin. Um, And and Ben Van Burden, your your colleague, your CEO, has has recently spoken about the legitimate need to continue to invest in oil and gas, counter to to what Bob's just described. And also in in, in the context of growing global demand, no choice but to continue to to make those investments. And I think has referenced around about sort of 35 or so projects for new oil and gas development over the next five to six years. So given that, for listeners, that's quite a conflict potentially to understand. So can you try and shed some light on that from your perspective? It isn't necessarily contradictory if you unpeel what is a very large and complex uh, question. First of all, to recognise the points that Bob made, including, I think, recognising the important point that transitions are all urgent, but they will move at different pace at different places in the world. I don't think we can expect India to make its energy transition at the same pace as Northwest Europe. And therefore, it's even more important that the OECD moves fast and and tries to get ahead of the curve of what is needed because there will be laggards. There are large centers of population in the world where where the uh, imperative is to have any energy. And the the concern isn't about the level of CO2 involved. Luckily, the concern is around air quality. And most of the measures that drive less CO2 also drive uh, an improvement in air quality. There's a lucky overlap of, um, uh, of priorities there. Oil and gas production is a process where if you stop investing, it declines quite fast. And the world isn't ready at the moment 
to face declining oil production by 5, 6, 7% a year or declining gas production. There isn't, we don't have even industrial capability to produce um, renewable energy and to electrify at the pace that will be needed if we totally stopped investing in oil and gas. And so we will need to make sure that we do continue to invest in oil and gas sufficiently to manage that decline, but we will need to push these products into decline over the period between now and 2000, um, uh, well, before 2050, obviously, if we want to achieve our uh, our goals. Um, but it will need to happen by pushing more low-carbon products into the world. So to me, the imperative is to, is to focus on that, to develop you know, large-scale, low-carbon um, uh, alternatives for customers, and then they will stop buying oil and gas. As long as I have a customer that wants to heat their home with gas in the winter, I don't think it's my role to say you can't have it. You're just going to have to buy an extra blanket. As long as I have a customer who can't afford an electric car but needs a car to go, go to work or to bring their children to school, it's not my job to tell them you can't have any gasoline. And, and so I need to continue to serve those customers and work very hard with governments and with anybody, everybody else to make the low-carbon alternative so appealing to them that they will stop buying oil and gas. And then, and then that, that demand will go down uh, automatically. Can I just follow up? I, I mean, I think that the real challenge is going to be here that we will see a reduction in demand for oil and gas. And then you will see simple supply and demand that the supply will then have to start responding to that. And expensive forms of oil and gas exploration production are the ones that will go offline first. So if I am an oil and gas company and I'm thinking about whether I'm going to invest the huge sums that are required to uh, extract oil and gas from expensive parts of the world, either in deep water uh, places or perhaps in the Arctic. They look like risky investments now, given where we're heading. I think there's a great danger of oil and gas companies miscalculating and then having so-called stranded assets, where they've made the upfront investment in exploration and production, but they're not going to be able to find any demand for their products. I totally agree with Bob. So, so expensive, particularly long-term production, is something people need to uh, think hard and long about, about the risk profile of that investment and whether they're not better off putting that money into lower carbon alternatives. Would we go into um, into huge expensive projects that need decades to return their money in oil? Probably less so. Uh, whereas on the natural gas side, I think we would be still be open to those considerations. But even natural gas, it's, and exactly as Bob says, will we'll need to, in the fullness of time, become a, a carbon-free source. So we'll require CCS and, uh, and or other negative emissions attached to it in some way um, in order to be sustainable in the second half of the century. So how do we make that happen? Because we've been talking about CCS for quite a while, mm. as an industry particularly, uh, and we've not seen a lot of progress. No, and, and we can't model a Paris outcome of well below two degrees without very significant CCS deployment. Uh, and so it will need to happen. It has happened to a much lower degree than is needed. Um, we are in most of the CCS projects that are producing in the world, in Canada, in Australia, in Norway. Um, so we take an active role. But we've seen government support for to bring this down the cost curve being very hesitant. We almost did in a, a large investment in the UK a few years ago until the government decided not to help. And it is such an early stage technology still that it needs public support. Solar energy came down the cost curve, particularly because Germany and California decided to put $200 billion of public money behind it. Not even a fraction of that has been put behind CCS. 
and they will need hundreds of deployments in order to become competitive. Um, and for that, we really need to work hard with regulators and governments to make sure there is a degree of public support, whether that's through a carbon price or through a subsidy uh, in order to get these projects going. There is another, of course, negative emissions pathway that we shouldn't forget. And we have become much more optimistic about the opportunity to use nature, not only to stop the deforestation, which of course is the urgent thing that needs to happen, but then also to think about restoration and reforestation over time as having massive potential to capture CO2 indefinitely, of course, in the oldest way that we know how, is by growing plants and trees. And that will be another way to capture the CO2 from the sources that are hardest to decarbonize, but still crucial to human well-being. So a combination of CCS, but also a larger focus on the power that nature-based solutions can have are, are two promising strands. We have freed up $300 million to invest in nature in the next three years to really test at scale how important this can be. So is that related then to the timeline for decarbonization and the phase out of liquid fuels where that's difficult? So if we look at the future of the energy system, we believe electricity can be essentially carbon-free, right? So uh, largely solar, wind, battery systems, and maybe and in places supplemented with natural gas with CCS. You still then have, let's say, 30 to 40% of the energy system that can't be electrified. Ocean-going cargo ships, planes, chemical industry, fertilizers, production of steel and cement. Today, we don't have technological solutions there. We might have them tomorrow. But with today's knowledge, we would probably say that a number of these, these industries will still require hydrocarbons. Um, and that's then where you have to apply your negative emissions in order for the system to work. I mean, I think uh, CCS is absolutely critical here. And it has to be said that governments and the industry have not moved quickly enough. They spend a lot of time blaming each other for the slow pace. But given the how vital it is, both bear responsibility. Now, it's important to recognise that CCS is most critical in giving us access to so-called negative emissions. So not for using with hydrocarbons. It's clear that the electricity system will have to be basically net negative. And that means bioenergy, burning probably wood, then capturing the carbon dioxide and storing it underground. So for an oil and gas company now, they should be thinking of CCS as part of being an energy company in the future, where they're less about the production of the products of gas and oil and more about the services that they offer in the skills. Oil and gas companies are experts in the development of the fields that could potentially be the future storage of carbon dioxide. They've developed most of the technology through the oil extraction techniques where you pump carbon dioxide in at the moment to get last few bits of oil and gas out of fields. And so that's where their future relies, but they should not be relying on CCS as a way of prolonging the life of oil and gas as a source of power. And I would like to see Shell make a commitment to a massive increase in its expenditure on CCS development because I suspect that it is nowhere near the scale of investment that it currently spends on exploration, production and distribution of oil and gas. And given that CCS 
could potentially be such a large part of its future business. It needs to be accelerating its investments in that, not saying, oh, well, well, we won't move until government gives us the right signals. There is no future in an oil and gas company, I don't think, that isn't serious about CCS. And what do you think, Bob, the role of government in terms of the incentivization? What should that look like? Well, carbon price will help, but the thing about the development of CCS, it needs to happen on a large scale. And often it's been difficult for individual countries to really make a big difference in terms of the scale of the investment required. It really should be the focus of an international consortium. There needs to be a much bigger expenditure by the industry on this because the only way governments will pay for this reasonably is putting extra taxes on oil and gas. So the industry has a choice here. Does it want that money to be spent via governments putting greater taxes on their products and services or does it voluntarily deploy more of its profits into these areas, divert more of its investment into CCS? And I think that's the big question for them. Which do they think will be a more efficient uh, route? Uh, I, I totally agree. CCS needs scaling up. The thing, though, of course, is you always look at given a limited amount of money to spend, what is my biggest bang for the buck in terms of CO2 reduction, right? So if I'm going to spend a billion dollar on CO2 reduction, do I spend it on energy efficiency? That gives me a certain dollar per ton of CO2 reduction. Do I spend it on electrical vehicles or on hydrogen? There's a world of things that I can spend it on. Unfortunately today, CCS is a very expensive dollar per ton CO2 reduction technology. So if I spend my billion on CCS, I can do it, but then I won't spend it on the rest, and I actually get less CO2 reduction in return for it. Uh, and, and so we will need to crack that code. We spend significant money on, um, on technology development and on deployment, but deployment at scale will need, um, will need governments to step up. And they are slowly stepping up, but, but it will still be on the low end of, um, uh, of what we need exactly. I would applaud if governments increase the, gov- the tax on oil and gas and, uh, and use the money to incentivize CCS. I think that will be a very efficient way of doing it. We'll be back with more from Martin and Bob after the break. But first, we've got a prize draw winner to announce. A big thank you to everyone who submitted ratings and reviews for your useful feedback. And congratulations to, I have no idea how to pronounce this, M-U-Y-I-Z 2016. You've been randomly selected as our winner for your review on Apple Podcasts. You can get in touch by emailing info at energyinst.org to claim your voucher. Now, back to the conversation. Now, I know you had some questions for each other. So, um, Bob, why don't you put your questions to Martin? So, the UK has put into law a target of reaching net zero emissions by 2050 of greenhouse gases that will presumably apply to everything that happens onshore and on the UK continental shelf. So the challenge for Shell and all the other oil and gas companies is, do you support this 2050 target? And will you commit to your operations in the UK, both on exploration, production, distribution, to meet that net zero target by 2050? Yeah, we totally support and want to be part of the net zero target by 2050 for the UK. That is a very exciting journey to be part of. I think it will 
it will focus the efforts of the sectors, um, which really to us is the only way to get there. We can't decarbonize Shell without decarbonizing our customers. So to work with sectorial customers on what is the journey to get there and then to jointly invest um, in it, uh, because again, for me to produce a lot of hydrogen if I have no customers um, doesn't uh, doesn't make sense uh, and customers won't buy hydrogen ships or cars if the production isn't there. So, so I think it will help this, uh, these sectors getting very, very focused, and we are delighted to be part of that journey and, and are absolutely committed to, uh, to, to getting there together with the country, or if the European Union were able to make that commitment to get there with the European Union. Because it's also linked to this point that I made that if the, if, if the rich world can't do it, there is no way the world's going to do it. So I think the rich world really needs to step up to, to go fast. So we have a little bit of margin in the, in the global carbon accounting for other areas that, for understandable reasons, will be focused on getting their people energy at all, uh, which is indeed uh, an agenda that we are also investing, uh, investing in. You may be aware of the target that we set ourselves to bring electricity to 100 million people that don't have it today. That, in our case, is clean electricity, so that will not make things worse from a global perspective. But we need to indeed to realize that the rest of the world may lag, and so we better move on. And we, if we're not part of it, then we're out. The public and societal debate on energy transition appears to be becoming very, very polarized. How can we overcome this? Because although it, this, it brings urgency into the debate, it also brings a lot of panic and potentially very damaging uh, side effects if it continues to polarise further. Uh, you're quite right that, um, that uh, a polarised debate is not likely to be the quickest way forward. Those who are pressing for action are recognising a clear fact. We are not moving fast enough. And in particular, I would draw attention to the movement by the students who are recognizing that if we don't move fast enough, they're the ones who are going to suffer the most. They're going to live for longest with the consequences, and the consequences are going to get worse long after current generations have gone. But I have to say that the oil and gas industry has to look at itself and and its actions up till now to understand why it is currently the focus of these campaigns and that is because there is a history of certain players within the industry trying to delay action spreading misinformation about climate change and i'm afraid they are going to just going to have to face the music on that going forward i would rather see the oil and gas companies recognizing that it has to ought to apologize for what has happened in the past because only then i think can the companies like Shell rebuild trust of society and of their potential future workers. Because as I said, I think young people now will look at a company and say, are they working in the best interests of society? And if they're not, and in particular, if they're saying one thing but doing another behind the scenes, then they were going to find it very difficult to get the best people. They're going to lose the battle for talent. And so that's really, I think, what needs to happen. Shell and the other oil companies have to, have to face the music for the past and commit going forward to being part of this new social compact, which is designed to accelerate the transition and manage it properly. Yeah, no, I accept much of what Bob says. It is also important, though, that the debate is informed. So 
people that believe that tomorrow we, sh- we should simply stop producing oil and gas and move on um, have quite a bit of voice in society. Um, and, and that, I think, polarizes the discussion to a point that is unhelpful because we cannot make the transition in one minute or one year or even five years. It is a multi-year transition and we need to defend also a decent quality of life for citizens as we make the transition. A fair transition, a just transition, and that nuance is too often missed in the debate and even in the contributions from informed debaters. So that's about fairness, I guess, fairness for all in creating a just transition Mm. to a low-carbon economy. So what's the big energy company role in that, Martin? I think a just transition is the only way the transition will be successful. Mm. If you get a public backlash against energy transition, then we will lose more time than we have. So um, uh, so I, I absolutely agree with that. And as you put up carbon prices, then you, know, you need to think about redistribution mechanisms that make sure that particularly the poorer half of society uh, you know, doesn't pay the bill disproportionately because that would, that would really stop popular support for, for what is needed. Of course, we don't write redistribution policies, but we have a very important role in lowering the cost of low-carbon offerings and in making them available in ways that all customers can benefit from them. And that is, that is a journey for the industry, and it's a journey for society. How do we make clean energy available to the masses in an affordable way? So we have a big role to play in keeping costs down and finding models to, to make it available to everybody. Then I do still believe this will need not only carbon pricing, but also government mandates. Um, You you need a a broad envelope of policy uh, initiatives, and we can advocate these, we can help design them, and of course, but but we can't implement them. So we've had a very wide-ranging discussion, uh, which has has been a lot of fun. And there's a number of things that I I certainly, I think I've heard. In talking about the the twin challenges of giving access to energy for those that don't currently have it and meeting our climate change ambitions, we're we're very early in that journey. We've got a great deal of of travel to take and time is pressing. And we've talked a a little bit about the the fact that that pace of transition is going to, to vary depending on where we are in the world uh, which is which is really understandable but we need I think I've heard both of you say several times now that the need for this transition to be fair for all and an honest debate and conversation is really really important if we're to do this in the most effective way in the most efficient way for all of the key stakeholders and I think the other thing that I've heard is is you talking about how governments and business and customers actually need to be aligned for this transition to be truly realised. So I guess if I take us back to the very beginning in one sentence, what does that uh, oil and gas company of 2050 look like? Martin? I think the successful one will have transformed themselves into an energy company that supplies clean electricity, biofuels, hydrogen, as well as oil and gas to those sectors that we haven't been able to decarbonize yet, but in a way that leads to net negative emissions that we need by then in order for the sums to add up, uh, helped by CCS and nature-based solutions. I think the ones that have not been successful in the transformation will have, have lost their relevance to the global community that they've had for so long. And Bob, final word? Hard to disagree with Martin uh, there, and I think that those companies are going to end up being dominant are the ones that are leading the conversation now. The transition starts today. 
Gentlemen, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much to today's guests, Martin Wetzelaar and Bob Ward, and to Louise Kingham for hosting this discussion. Later this month, the Energy Institute will bring together the leaders of the oil and gas industry in London for IP Week to continue the debate on decarbonization. Have a look at ipweek.co.uk for details. As always, you can find further reading and research cited in this episode on our podcast page at energy-inst.org podcast. Please get in touch with us on Twitter if you have an idea for a future episode or a question you'd like answered. And tune in next time for the final episode of our first season. Former EI President Malcolm Brinded, trustee at the Shell Foundation, will be joined by Anshul Patel from BeeBox to talk about the joint challenges of increasing access to energy and lowering emissions. Energy in Conversation is brought to you by the Energy Institute. This episode was produced by Sarah George and Essen Saren. Music on this episode is by Jack Keeney. I'm your host, Dean Somerville. Thanks for listening.